Hello and welcome to the Church Times podcast. I'm Ed Thornton, Assistant Editor. On this week's podcast, we talk about the neo-Nazi marches in Charlottesville and how church leaders have been responding. We talk about messy church for the elderly. And we speak to Dr Mark Vernon about what Stoicism and Christianity have in common. Don't forget that you can subscribe to the Church Times, five issues of our print and digital edition for just £5. I'm joined today by Hattie Williams, news reporter, and by Madeline Davies, our deputy news editor and features editor. First, Episcopal bishops of Virginia have warned that the far-right rally that took place in Charlottesville last week will spread. They have urged the church not to be mute in the face of evil. Madeline, you've been following this story closely. What's been going on? There was a really large um, witness by people of faith at a counter-rally in Charlottesville, a number of Episcopal clergy among them. This was organised to be a witness against the um, Unite the Right rally. Um, the Virginia bishops have then written a reflection entitled What We Saw and What You Can Do. And that lists a number of actions which they're recommending that Christians in America can take um, in response to something that they think is going to appear in other towns and cities. What sort of things are they recommending? So they talk about being clear about the issues and they make a number of distinctions. So within that, they're kind of defending the right to free speech. They're saying that issues such as the removal of monuments, the Confederacy are complex. But they also urge people to speak out against the kind of the falsity of white supremacy, to take a stand, not to be quiet, not to be mute, as you say, in the face of evil. Obviously, the question of removing the monuments is one that's very live within the Episcopal Church because a number of churches themselves contain images such as the Confederate flag. Um, I know that the um, cathedral in the capital, D.C., actually removed some stained glass that contained that image. So it's a a debate that's happening within the church um, as well as more broadly in towns and cities. We've had faith leaders from across different denominations but of course many people as we've reported know that many of the people who elected Donald Trump were evangelical Christians in the US. Has there been much of a response from those leaders? So I think a number of members of his evangelical advisory board have issued statements condemning the far right, condemning white supremacy but in contrast with his business advisory committee where I think now five people have withdrawn and there's been no resignations I'm not sure personally whether we can expect that. I would imagine that they would argue that it's their duty to remain in an advisory capacity. Perhaps that being a member of that board doesn't necessitate agreeing with everything that the president does. I'm sure that other people would argue that it would be a very powerful sign were they to resign. It would send a very strong message to their constituencies that they're actually breaking um, any connection with the president. And that could have very far-reaching consequences. We've also featured a small extract from the Bishop of Indianapolis, the Right Reverend Jennifer Baskerville Burroughs. So she has written a reflection that includes some memories of growing up and stories that she heard from her grandparents about the KKK. Um, And she wonders what they would have made of what happened in Charlottesville. She talks about being vigilant in naming both the evil and the love that defeats it. So a very clear call to the church to be a witness of love and to dismantle systems of injustice and oppression. She was the first black woman to become a diocesan bishop in the Episcopal Church and I think her her words should be shared widely. Just worth flagging up this week's leader column on page 10 which says We've been impressed by the weight that many church leaders, Episcopalians among them, have thrown into the protest against the alt-right. 
But of course, there is another brand of Christianity that supported Trump's rise to the presidency, and this has been largely silent in recent days or worse. Hattie, you've written a story this week on Messy Vintage, which is an offshoot of Messy Church. Could you tell us more? Messy Vintage is, as you say, an offshoot of Messy Church. So basically it serves the elderly in similar ways, so creative activities, afternoon teas, basically a a kind of social club for the elderly who might not be able to get to church or perhaps they no longer appreciate or necessarily want formal forms of worship. So this has been piloted in St Mary's Chidham in West Sussex. It was originally founded in Jersey at a Methodist church, Philadelphia Messy Centre. I really like some of the quotes from um, Father Matthews in in your piece where he says, we all felt truly blessed, the conversation flowed freely and there were lots of memories from childhood being shared. It's such a simple but lovely way for the church to draw alongside the elderly where they are. And we had some lovely comments from the residents. So this was actually run in a care home, wasn't it, one one of them? So it's, it's getting outside the walls of the church to people who perhaps can't get to church. This kind of ministry is so important. There's lots of talk about young people and... I think because often they're seen as the future of the church and, and that kind of ministry. But there's, there's really fruitful things going on with the elderly. Many people going in to run services in care homes, things like Messy Vintage. I think it's really good that we can profile this kind of thing because it might give people ideas for sort of that kind of mission that they can do. Absolutely. And I think this sort of thing is spreading across the UK. I mean, it's difficult to tell sort of the numbers of the specifically named initiative, but there are some pilots in, in Portsmouth and London. But obviously, you know, many more people could be doing similar things just under a different name. So if churches want to start something like this, they can get in touch with Messy Vintage, can they? Absolutely, yeah. There are links on the Messy Church website to Messy Vintage um, because they're all part of the same group, which is uh, supported by the Bible Reading Fellowship. So if you want to find out more of them, I would suggest going on their website. Next weekend is the Greenbelt Festival, of which Church Times is the media partner, and we will all be out there in force, very much looking forward to it. There's been some reports this week that Greenbelt will be hosting a programme of Muslim culture. Madeline, you've been speaking to the festival director, Paul Northup, about this. Greenbelt has, since 9-11, actually featured um, Muslim artistry and culture. That was a really deliberate decision in the wake of the attack and some of the rhetoric around the war on terror to try and build bridges to Muslim communities um, in the UK rather than um, marginalising or demonising Muslim communities, try to actually showcase some of their culture to festival goers. This is a bit of a departure, but also a continuation. It's going to be an entire programme of its own venue, so much more extensive than the festival's ever seen before. He did say that they'd had some questions from some of their core supporters, really just seeking more information, but also that some media outlets had reported it quite negatively. He argues that those outlets which have never been to the festival have any intention of going, but he did acknowledge that um, there'd been some raised eyebrows. You asked him whether Greenbelt was still really a Christian festival? I asked him whether he wanted to um, extend this to other faiths and he said that he would love for Greenbelt to become a space where um, all faiths and none could feel welcome. And he said that basically the word Christian for him was kind of slippery and vexed were the words that he used. So while it kind of remained a festival with a Christian foundation for Christian foundational beliefs, He said that sometimes using certain words, which could include the word Christian, could be more of a barrier than a bridge. 
I also spoke to Abdul Rahman Malik, who's been going to Greenbelt for 10 years and who has helped to put together this programme. And he said that he felt that Greenbelt was a confidently Christian festival that was also very welcoming and encouraged people to engage, to question and to encounter different forms of faith. He's really excited about the programme and spoke at length, which you can read in the article, about what people can expect. So he said that he'd received numerous questions from festival goers at Greenbelt about what Muslim devotions look like, having taken part himself in kind of a Christian festival. And he said that in the past they have used these chants and they've been very well received. Um, he did stress that he always chose litanies which do not contradict the Christian faith. And so he kind of drew on some of the commonalities, some of the shared understanding about the attributes of God which is shared by both Muslims and Christians. And I mean, this is a, a programme going on at Greenbelt where people can, can learn more about how Muslims worship and, and aspects of Muslim culture, but the, obviously the, the communion service on the Sunday morning, the worship remains Christian, doesn't it? It remains. So that there's yeah. no question here of a sort of an interfaith worship service. This is more yeah. a, way for, a kind of bridge-building exercise, which is quite common in interfaith work. So I think they wanted to include the chants and the devotions because religion is part of culture, but it's a much more broad cultural programme that's going to include hip-hop, poetry, talks, I think even um, an introduction to cooking, history, politics. It's much broader than just the kind of spiritual side of the culture. And it's really about Christians and Muslims forming friendships and bridging divides. Just to flag up there a letter we've got on page 12 this week from David White in Sevenoaks saying, do get along and visit your local mosque, you'll be pleasantly surprised what a, a friendly welcome you get and what friendships you can make there. He says non-Muslims are welcome to visit as the imam says the mosque is for everyone. So any bits of this week's paper stand out for you? So I enjoyed the back page interview with Jenny Agata. Um, the Railway Children was one of my favourite films when I was growing up and she reflects on playing Bobby in that. It was a really nice interview where she also talks about some of the charitable causes that she's involved with and of course her role in Call the Midwife. There's also a feature on one of the performances at the Edinburgh Festival Fringe, described as a family-friendly take on the Reformation. It's called A Monk's Tale, and it's sort of been described as a horrible history meets Monty Python. I enjoyed a guest column by Claire Jones, who's written in our comments section several times before. She's was covering one of Angela Tilby's columns, because Angela Tilby is on, is on holiday for a few weeks. She writes about attending the Conservative Evangelical Church in which she grew up with her civil partner and just some of the nerves around that and then being pleasantly surprised at the overall friendliness of the response but then reflecting on how the welcome wasn't quite as full as it may have been for a heterosexual couple and just reflecting on the gospel reading this week about crumbs under the table she says i think there is power in pursuing friendships across theological divides even when they are not yet offered on equal terms i will take it all crumbs or loaf Dr. Mark Vernon is a psychotherapist, writer and teacher who used to be an Anglican priest. He wrote in our comment pages last week about how the ancient philosophy of Stoicism is undergoing a revival. But, he said, its theological roots should not be missed. I spoke to him to find out more. You write in your piece that Stoic philosophy is undergoing a substantial revival today. Could you just briefly explain what Stoic philosophy is and, and why its popularity is increasing? Yes, Stoicism originally is from the ancient Greek and then Roman world where it was very big um, and it was very much in the air around the time of the first Christians and it sort of had two dimensions. One was a therapeutic angle 
um, which help cultivate an inner tranquility or steadiness in life so that you could um, tolerate and find a way through whatever life might throw at you. But then it also had a spiritual dimension for the ancients um, where that steadiness in life broadened your horizons so you could become more aware of a sort of divine pulse that was uh, moving through all things, which the Stoics called the Logos and, you know, as Christians will realise, was picked up and developed uh, in early Christianity. I think it's the more therapeutic angle that's really um, becoming popular again today. Um, it's very closely related to things like cognitive behavioural therapy, for example, um, and it's uh, a sort of practice that um, within yourself um, you can develop in order to cope with the stresses and strains of everyday life. When the term stoical is used in popular discourse, it's often taken to mean, you know, stiff upper lip, kind of suppressing your feelings. Is, is that a caricature of what stoicism is really about? Yeah, it is. Um, unfortunately, a lot of the ancient schools like cynicism, scepticism, epicureanism and stoicism, um, they've all got a bit twisted along the way. Um, I tend to think of it as like this, that the Stoics were interested in our emotional lives, but they didn't think we should sort of sit on it um, and bury our feelings. They thought we should get to know our feelings. And it's in getting to know them um, that uh, you find uh, you actually are sort of bigger than your feelings, at least, you know, much of the time. Yeah, I mean, you write that instead of living reactively, the Stoic starts to live life more deliberately, able to tame emotions and even to control how attention is directed. Yeah, yeah. So um, um, Epictetus, uh, who wrote this book called The Handbook, which is um, very important as a source for ancient Stoicism, um, he, like all the Stoics, really favoured practising this in the small moments of the everyday. Um, because then you've got a chance of thinking about it and not um, being overwhelmed by it. And he um, taught about uh, being in the marketplace, which was a very standard domain for Stoics um, to practice their philosophy. The word Stoic comes from the Stoa, which was a colonnade around the marketplace in Athens. Um, and he has this rather nice story, which I gloss slightly, but more or less he says, imagine you're waiting for cabbages at the cabbage stall. You wait a little while in the queue and then the cabbage is run out just when you get to the front of the queue and the cabbage stallholder says, sorry, mate, you know, it's full price cabbages now because they're picked today, not yesterday. Um, and the question is, what happens next? And that little moment uh, for the Stokes is really important. You know, do you get angry? Do you get uh, downcast? Knowing yourself in all these little moments every day um, is this really the first step um, along the Stoic path. Sure. I mean, you argue that Stoicism and Christianity are perhaps more closely linked than has often been assumed. Um, how so? Well, I think that um, many early Christians, particularly in the monastic tradition, they picked up on Stoic practices as a way of developing um, uh, how you could experience God in life. Um, you know, the Stoics themselves had argued um, that it wasn't just for therapeutic purposes, but that it could open up, open you up to the Logos, um, uh, which preceded Christianity. And then, of course, Christianity adopted that notion to understand the life and death of Jesus Christ and the incarnation. It radically uh, uh, sort of transforms it too. No ancient Stoic would have thought the Logos could have been incarnate and died, for example. Um, but nonetheless, that sense that there was um, a word in the performative sense, that which makes and creates, um, that's part of the divine. Um, the Christians picked up on that. Um, and 
Paul, for example, according to Acts anyway, quotes um, from Stoic sources to persuade the Stoic philosophers in Athens that um, he was onto what they were onto, but with a new dispensation in Christianity. Do you detect any Stoicism in any of Jesus's teachings in, in the Gospels? Yeah, this is very contested area because it's about how Hellenistic was Hellenistic Judaism. Um, and there's been a big stress in recent New Testament studies to emphasize the Jewishness of Jesus rather than the Hellenistic aspect. But I think it's there. Um, one would be um, the cosmopolitan kinds of Judaism that Jesus um, practiced. Um, the idea that we're citizens of the cosmos, cosmopolitans, um, rather than, say, of our local city-state or of our ethnic group, was a Stoic one originally. Um, and I think that must have seeped into the Judaism of, of Jesus' time. Um, we know that he would have been exposed to Greek culture um, because he lived within walking distance of an important Greek city, and presumably it was an important source of work. So... Um, I think that that sense of Jesus that you get that uh, he realizes that his Judaism needs to break the bounds of Judaism and so he can speak to Gentiles, speak to, speak to Samaritans and so on. That cosmopolitan feel, I think, is just one indicator of the Hellenistic influences on Jesus's practice. But you also write that modern Stoics are inclined to reject the theological roots that you describe. Um, why is that? Is that because of ignorance or an ideological bias against religion or something else? I think it's mostly because people tend to turn to Stoicism having turned their back on Christianity um, or maybe other religions. You know, I think the revival of modern Stoicism is part of this um, uh, search for forms which are spiritual but not religious. People know they need a practice to help them through life but don't want to turn to traditional religions. I think it's mistaken, though. And it's mistaken for good Stoic reasons, actually, that the Stoics believed um, that you could trust their way because it chimed with the Logos and because, as it were, it led to a way of life that was deeply grounded in reality, in divine reality. Um, and I think that they would have thought that modern Stoicism that tries to take that aspect away um, is cutting itself um, uh, you know, from its moorings. Um, that um, what you do is trying to anchor your life in your own life rather than in a life bigger than yours. So I think that they would have really wanted to criticise the sort of spiritual but not religious approach um, of modern Stoicism. And do you sense openness in, in the church today to Stoicism or do you think there's some suspicion that this is a perhaps a, a, a non-Christian philosophy which they don't need to have much to do with? Um I don't know. I, th I think there could be suspicion just because um, it's seen as a threat. Um, I think it's particularly a threat because, paradoxically enough, I think we're not very good at personal transformation in certainly the Church of England that I know. Um, you know, if you ask a clergyman woman, they would definitely say they're into personal transformation. But um, it's that often actually focused more on um, things like discipleship um, or social action that kind of thing, rather than really inner transformation. And um, I think that modern Stoics are definitely into inner transformation, um, direct experience, you might say. Um, and I think we're not so good at that um, in the church. Um, so it can be seen as threatening. And does this tie in with your practice as a psychotherapist, the inner transformation and, and the insights of Stoicism? Yeah, very much. I mean, I think that actually psychotherapy too has arisen in response to the loss of Christian wisdom about inner life. 
And I think you can actually track this back to the Reformation when the monasteries and the religious houses were, were shut down so quickly. Um, this uh, meant that we became uncoupled from that rich tradition that went all the way through medieval Christianity back into early Christianity, the desert fathers and mothers, and, and then coupled into ancient Stoicism at that point. So um, I think that psychotherapy um, arose in the vacuum, really, of, of, of how to navigate our inner life. Um, and again, that's often why there can be tension between Christianity and psychotherapy. It's almost like there's a kind of turf war going on. Um, but I don't think uh, there need to be. And I actually think um, they need to speak, the two traditions need to speak to each other much more. Because it seems pretty clear to me today that people are interested in inner life. And I do wonder whether part of the reason why people aren't turning to the church is that they sense that it's not really going to find much resource um, in churches. I definitely think that psychotherapy has insights to offer. Um, and they're ones that connect directly with biblical ideas. You know, so when Jesus says you're so preoccupied with the, the speck in your brother's eye um, when you've got a great plank in your own, you know, modern psychotherapy calls that projection. And it um, has a lot of insights into how projection works and how it can limit our lives. Um, so in that way, um, there's a lot of insights. But I think a more important point is that if you want to be a therapist, if you want to be a, a kind of spiritual director, you've got to be um, working at these things in yourself. And again, my sense is that in the church, this great emphasis on mission, which is sort of outward looking, a kind of external manifestation of Christianity, means that a lot of clergy just don't have the time to do the inner work. You know, they don't practice things like silence um, as a rule. Um, our liturgies are very wordy. They draw us out of ourselves rather than helping us to reflect inwardly. And so developing that practice is the most important thing. And then it will naturally come into clergy sermons and so on. Do you find the Archbishop Canterbury's emphasis on prayer and renewal of the religious life helpful? Do you think that's a, a way forward where perhaps people respond to calls to monastic communities or to taking up a very a much more rigorous life of prayer and silence? Might that help with the, the busyness and the focus on mission? Well, um, I think that the, the renewed interest in monasticism is really to be welcomed. I mean, I welcome it and I'm and part of it in a way myself, too. I get nervous when it's almost immediately turned into a mission opportunity. Um, I think that um, that's got to be dropped, basically. People will come if they find the way of life attractive. And that uh, happens when people really are living life in all its fullness. I do really feel that will speak for itself. Um, and if you immediately think monasticism is a new mission opportunity then you undermine um the monasticism from the start you've turned it into something else already finally your, your new book the idler guide to ancient philosophy could you just tell us a bit more about that yeah so um i've written this book the idler guides to ancient philosophy and really what i try to do there is capture the spirit of ancient philosophy um the spiritual side of it um you know the semi-religious side even and the point about that is that i think much modern philosophy is too dry and abstract um, it, it's become uncoupled from ancient philosophy, which really was a way of life. Um, and I actually think that the monks and nuns of the early church were much more natural inheritors of ancient philosophy um, than a professor um, or whoever you might think of as a philosopher today. Um, so there are very natural and deep connections between ancient philosophy and Christianity that I try to draw out in the book. Do you think the sort of turf wars between the new atheists and the true believers do you, do you think that's a sort of that time has passed yeah i think that the very um abstract um proof empirical evidence 
sceptical in the sense of undercutting other people's beliefs and that kind of atheism I think it's had its moment um, it's on the wane and there are different kinds of atheists now um, I I'm, uh, have spent quite a lot of time thinking about the so-called Sunday assembly um, and they're definitely interested in the ecstatic side of life um, in these deeper pulses that aren't um, empirical and um, you know, materially obvious um, so I think there's a lot of sort of return to uh, what can be called spiritual traditions, wisdom traditions within atheism like, moving forward now. And, and I mean, conversely, do you think the sort of a Christian apologetics approaches that seek to offer proof and p- persuade people to believe, do you, is, is, do you see those as problematic? Yeah, I think, um, you know, I do think that Jesus has become quite toxic, actually. I mean, in, in talking about ancient philosophy in this way, I come across... Um, a lot of um, people who are interested in spiritual life, inner life, and they realise that um, you know, the material world um, which we can live so much in is not fulfilling. Um, and yet the sense is that um, uh, Christianity is somehow going to close things down for you, not open things up. Um, and this is a massive problem. Um, it's, it's Christianity and um, the name of Jesus, re- Jesus has really... Um, attracted that to it um, and I think a lot of it is because there's been a tremendous emphasis on you need to be somehow taken out of your current life in order to be saved uh, your focus needs to move away from yourself to um, uh, to Jesus and um, that feels um, depleting to many people um, I think that a much uh, more promising way forward is found actually in the old minis- uh, monastic and mystical traditions and where the incarnation was seen as something that's happening inside you. It's cultivating and growing the divine um, as part of you. So you become akin to God. You can resonate um, with the spirit. Um, and that's the way that life expands. Mark, can I finally ask you just just briefly about your your kind of own journey? Because I know you were once a priest. Yeah, so I was um, ordained. I'm a clergyman in the Church of England and did a curacy. And that fell apart. Um you know, for various reasons, um, but um, I certainly left feeling that I was breathing the clean air of the Enlightenment um, and had turned my back on all that Christian superstition, um, but I found that wasn't satisfying. Um, and this is when I discovered ancient philosophy, because um, it seemed to be a way of life that was both thoughtful, but trying to connect and grow life. Um, and um, then realised that particularly Platonism actually uh, was very deeply connected with Christianity. I did a PhD on Plato um, and so I found my way back towards going to church. But as part of a mix, you know, I'm, I'm very keen on silence, for example. So I go to Buddhist places to practice that because they have a living tradition of, of extended silence there. Um, and you need to be part of a community that's living that tradition to really get into it. Um, so I, um, I, I certainly would regard myself as um, part of the Christian tradition now, but not the Christian tradition alone, actually, um, you know, borrowing from other places as well. That's it for this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find lots more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, www.churchtimes.co.uk If you're not yet a subscriber, why not take a look at our latest introductory offer, one month of our digital package and five issues of the paper for just £5. Go to www.churchtimes.co.uk slash subscribe.
The music, as always, was by Sort After Sounds. Don't forget to tune in next Friday for our next episode, and thanks for listening. Thank you.